0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul
1: rees Mandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here.
0: And we're pleased to welcome back to the program our friend Professor Christopher Terry, who is at the University of Minnesota, where he teaches and researches uh, media law. Welcome, Chris. Hey, guys. How's it going? I think I think we're all here. We're all we, we yeah, made it present. we made it to another show. Present so I and think accounted <laughs> for.
1: I hope everyone in the listening audience is doing well. As well as can and, be done. Yeah, as well as
0: can be. So, you know, we're here today because uh there's definitely been some action around the federal communications commission in areas that we care about that impact uh radio and impact uh our media and what we what we see in here um the fcc is making an appeal to the supreme court about media ownership rules um as well uh we're going to talk a bit about network neutrality uh, also known as open internet uh regs uh because there's been some shifts there that that really could affect our ability to uh, freely receive and transmit information over the internet. So that's uh, that's a couple of things that we wanted to get to,
1: but we, we have a couple of, of other things to, to hit up first. Well, I'm, I just wanted to start the show today by asking Dr. Christopher Terry, our resident expert on the Federal Communications Commission, um, what the FCC could be doing at this time uh, to make Americans' lives uh, better during the pandemic. What What role... What a what a highly functioning, well-oiled uh, government bureaucracy uh, could what could it what role could it play uh, during these times, especially when people are depending on, uh, let's say, the internet, right, to um, access uh, vital services like public school. Um, let alone the you know I, I could start making a huge list. Chris, what what you, have you been giving this any thought these days?
2: Yes, uh, and it's actually been a topic that's kind of been circulating at the commission uh, recently. There is a lot of discussion about things that the FCC could do, both short and long term. Um, Obviously, the the agency's failure to meet the objectives of the National Broadband Plan earlier this year, those were 10-year-long goals for basically universal access, really would have made a significant difference uh, in people's lives as they they do a lot online. Before we started, you asked me about uh, this idea that maybe broadcast television could be employed in some way. Yeah,
1: I, saw, I saw a tweet. To deliver, socia- uh,
2: deliver less. On my social and- medias,
1: there was a tweet that went around yesterday, both on Facebook and Twitter, that I saw in numerous places that was suggesting that uh, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where public school children could turn on their televisions and watch uh, fully educational programming, not like some hybrid commercial, but like. Fully educational programming to help, you know, supplement what they're losing out on by not being able to attend in person classes. Uh, And
2: well, it's funny that you say that because, ironically, uh, that was a vision for both radio when radio came online in the 1920s, but also for television when it came online in the late 1940s after World War II, is that it would be a mechanism for delivering lessons, uh, especially. Uh, I'm from Wisconsin originally, as you guys know, and uh, the belief was is that farm kids would be able to work in the fields all day and then listen to radio at night to get their educational lessons, and that was actually seen as a, uh, a pretty powerful development. Um, although the FCC could certainly encourage that, it would be very, very difficult for the FCC to mandate something like that. Um, there'd be some first amendment issues as well as some compelled speech issues with that. Now, if Congress were to tell the FCC to, to do something like that, that would sort of change the dynamic. There certainly would be some challenges to that, but you could see see like a public originating that,
1: like a public works administration, like jobs for, for, for television producers uh, program where, where people would be employed to produce highly educational content you know but and you know as part of this government stimulus to preserve jobs you know anyway i uh, i no.
2: i certainly spent some time this past week uh producing content for my students at Minnesota who are going to be doing some remote learning uh it's not easy to do it's very hard to do effectively and uh it's very time consuming so uh, setting aside whether or not we should do it, I certainly think it's a great idea. If we could, we could figure out a way to get that content from point A to point B. Um, the uh, the problem, of course, is that how are you going to lay out the day? How are you going to get it there? Who's going to actually produce it? Who's going to pay for it? Fight
1: over the culture war aspect of right? The education uh, yeah, there.
2: I mean, what I love to love to be able to turn on the regular television or even the cable system at two o'clock and have my you know, junior high level uh, student. You know, kids watch uh, math. Yes, that'd be fantastic. Right. You know, that's handle, uh, that's interesting. I can handle the social studies at home.
0: Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned cable. Uh, so I distinctly remember uh, growing up in the '80s in uh, Ocean County, uh, New Jersey, and the uh, local community college had a channel on our cable system, and which it actually did broadcast instructional programming. Um, that yeah. was, I believe, directly tied to curricula, and you, I believe, you could take a, a mostly correspondence course. I think is what we would have well, called it then in the in the pre-internet age. And the I, uh, but but it was just there. It was just free, and and it would have been the type of programming you might yeah. have you know viewed in a class, uh, you know, that was produced, you know, for for the purposes of instruction. But I mean, it was it was just kind of always on, uh, it, it, or it was running some kind of uh, b- a bulletin board uh, when it didn't have the programming. I mean, it seems well, like cert- even some of that, re- some of that infrastructure uh, still exists.
2: Well, certainly, uh, peg channels would have been uh, a great mechanism for the delivery of this kind of content. And then they would have been locally based. You could have just had local teachers come to the local... Uh the cable head end and recorded lectures and then run them that way. Yeah. And what's a peg um, channel? Can you can you t- can you yeah, tell everyone what uh, peg channel is? Sure, it's a uh, it's the channel that used to show like the lunch menu for the the local school or uh, community uh, run cable station. Sometimes would run that like the town boards things like that. And uh, that would have been a, a a great option for the delivery of that kind of content. But um, as you're probably well aware uh, most of those stations have been taken off of cable systems because they're not funded anymore
1: yeah, and it would have, they um, were,
2: i was actually on the board for one uh when i was still teaching at milwaukee uh in one of the milwaukee suburbs that just got shut down when peg funding was no longer mandated as part of a cable many bill. of those stations they, had, are, they had to close it many down. of those television yeah.
1: stations are still uh still present and accounted for but struggling at this time i think you know yeah. if we if we uh i think the irony i just want to mention is that all of this programming is available on youtube at this time if you know where to look for it if you like it but it's youtube is such a um it's all things at all times you know the internet can be can be both it's a haystack yeah and so it's a, i mean it's, all it's of this educational haystack. all this educational programming is there for for parents or children who want to access it or can access it or know what to put into the search bar but At the same time, there's uh, everything else under the sun is available on that YouTube channel.
2: I certainly would like to see it be a more proactive situation, but we should have been having this conversation in March rather than now in August as kids are returning to school.
0: Well, let's uh, turning our attention to a different aspect of the Federal Communications Commission. One of its responsibilities is, uh, you know, Really regulating the access to to licenses uh, for radio and television in the public interest,
1: Paul. When you say uh, you you mentioned the word uh, licenses, and I wanted to let the listeners know that what you're saying is who has access to the airwaves, who owns the stations, right? So
0: uh, exactly, who, you know who who owns uh, your media, which which you know it it it. Te, you know it's thought to have some influence again on, on again what what is therefore seen what is broadcast what is the content of the programming and and how does that programming serve the communities where television and radio stations are licensed and and chris you know you've been on the show many many times now over the over the last 5 years talking about how the fcc has basically failed it's failed to to modernize these rules, which were really first set in place uh, in, in their most current form in 1996 with the Telecommunications Act of 1996, and and the FCC is required by law to regularly update the rules, and, and part of that uh, that that mandate comes from the fact that an acknowledgement that the situation on the ground changes, uh, media markets change, uh, but. The FCC has has bungled it and continually has had these rules changes uh, challenged in court, uh, principally at the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia, which has consistently struck them down for for reasons like that. They they haven't done sufficient research, not really uh, adequately demonstrating what the public interest is in these changes or that they'll have the intended effects. Um, And so but. And so the FCC has been—it's been this kind of, uh, you know, sort of like a Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football, right? They keep <laughs> queuing up to kick the football, uh, only you know the Third Circuit Court of Appeals keeps uh, keeps pulling it up, uh, it, mostly because they haven't done their homework. Um, but there's been a new development here, a, a, a sort of a fresh development uh, in this in this legacy of failure. What's going on?
2: Well, the FCC and the NAB have appealed the case to the Supreme Court, and uh, just uh, about two weeks ago now, the uh, response briefs from the Prometheus group, as well as the rest of the citizen petitioners, were due. Now, this gets a little out in the weeds, so just bear with me for a minute. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals has has remanded at least part of the FCC's decision four times. That includes the first time, the most significant, which was in 2004, and then subsequent sendbacks in 2011, 2016, and 2019. And what what the FCC and the National Association of Broadcasters have done is they are appealing the 2019 decision to the Supreme Court. And as we record this now, the case is pending in front of the Supreme Court, but that's, that's a little misleading. What's actually pending in front of the Supreme Court is a decision by the court on whether or not to hear the case. And this is where what we refer to as granting cert. The court agrees to hear a court case. They grant certory to the case uh, before they hear it. And we're we're at the stage where the court will eventually make a decision on that, probably later this fall. But... uh, the response, the FCC and the NAB both sort of attacked the Third Circuit as being a, this immovable object that they can't get around, that has tied them up and stymied them for going on eighteen years now, and they really complained about the fact that they haven't been able to get this case uh, move forward, but in in reality, the FCC has not done anything significant to move it forward. In fact, uh, it's quite arguable and quite demonstrable, actually, that the FCC has done everything it could to delay this process. And the most recent, recent example of that is the, uh, the fact that they've now appealed this to the Supreme Court rather than finish, uh, the, the current and ongoing uh, review that you discussed earlier, which was launched in 2018, and is uh, very much overdue for a decision at this point. Uh, but what's the most recent event is that the Prometheus Group and the other citizen petitioners filed a joint response to the uh, the FCC and NAB petitions to the Supreme Court to hear the case. Now, two petitions, one from the NAB, one from the FCC. Um, they're very close in design, but not they don't exactly touch on the same issues, the FCC making a government argument, the NAB making an industry argument, but they very much hit on the same same themes. The response brief, though, uh, makes the, the point I've made many, many times on the show, and I've made many times in research, and in just about any venue I've ever talked about this, is that there's really nothing for the Supreme Court to look at here. This is a basic procedural case. The agency has failed to do what the law mandates that it do, it is supposed to do. And this is uh, both on ownership rules, which it is supposed to review uh, on a regular basis, that was two years at first, it's now a four-year review process, uh, but also on the really important issues dealing with uh, ownership of stations by women and minorities. And uh, what we where we are at now is that we're waiting to see if the court will actually hear the case. I am very skeptical that the court will take the case and we'll be back to where we were two years ago, which also puts paid on the FCC claims that it's the courts that's delaying this process. Um, But even even if the court were to grant cert and hear the case, I don't think the FCC can win this case because it's a largely procedural case. The FCC has not followed the law. I've said that many times, and they have no evidence to support the decisions they've made at various points along the way. And even their minority ownership program, which was introduced in 2017, it's called the incubator program, actually has no provision in it that actually awards stations to women who or racial or ethnic minorities. And it's pretty hard to argue that a policy is rational when you find realities like that about it.
0: So so, Chris, uh, help us understand here. What is it that the the FCC and the NAB are petitioning the court to do? Should they should they take up the case? Should they grant uh, cert? You know, what what is what is the grand blockage they want removed? What is it? Th- what is the ultimate end result they want to see in our media markets? Uh, the, the, what, what's their end goal here?
2: Well, they'd really like the case to be moved out of the Third Circuit. And whatever their stated goals are, they want to take the case away from the panel. The same three judges have heard the case every time it's come up, essentially on every FCC decision since 2003. And the FCC can't get past that panel because they're not doing their job. So part of the effort here, although it's it's certainly not explicit, it's maybe implicit in what the FCC is trying to do, is they're trying to get a conclusion to the Prometheus cases as the review mechanism for this. Because right. if they they move the case back to D.C., the, the court that normally reviews administrative agency decisions, they're going to get a lot more deference into the decisions that they make. The D.C. circuit's a lot more... Uh, friendly sure. if you will. That's so, that's over that's oversimplifying it certainly. Right.
0: Well, I'm but, looking I'm looking down uh, yeah, what I'm trying to get to here Chris is like through all of this, why should your average person be concerned? It, the, the average person who who cares about media democracy right so so is you know alert to these issues and cares about ownership and cares about what type of, of media is broadcast in their in their communities like how does i 'm trying to break it down to to, to that level like what, what 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 difference hangs in the balance here that if if the n a b and the FCC are able to argue this in the Supreme Court i mean what is their objective and, and, and what is the difference? how would we perceive that difference because i what I worry is that this sort of starts to sound like like man, legal maneuvering and it's hard to to put a pin on why it's significant to 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 our democracy. And if well, no, you can that, connect the dots.
2: Yeah, that's that's a fair question. Uh, there certainly is a little legal maneuvering going on here. Of course, yes. But the the, the outcomes of this case really matter. Mm-hmm. The FCC has lost so many times on its attempt to further consolidate ownership rules that if it were to somehow pull out a win or even maybe a draw at the Supreme Court here, the, the, certainly the opportunity for additional consolidation, uh, especially like the type we saw in the late 90s and early 2000s for your broadcast TV and your broadcast radio outlets that are out there, is, uh, is certain to come. If the FCC wins this case or the NAB gets a win by, sort of by, uh, you know, default, if you will. The, uh, the, The ownership proceeding that is standing right now, that is basically unresolved and largely unacted on, will quickly implement new rules for another round of consolidation. Broadcasters made a lot of money immediately in the wake of the consolidation that was launched in 1996, and they've been salivating, largely salivating, over the idea that we might see another round of consolidation at that level. And how
0: did they make money? I, I think this is an, an important point. Okay. Like, where, where did that? How did they make money in the wave of consolidation? How did consolidation result in profit? Because I think there's some people who might hear this and say, "Well, isn't that what we want? Aren't broadcasters having?" having difficulty uh, you know so something that would that would allow them to generate additional profits wouldn't that be in the public interest? Yeah
2: the, the problem of course is that the main way that they made money was through economy of scale and the repurposing of existing content and the reduction in air staff. Um, they reduced the diversity of content they started producing content not on a local level. So if you were listening to your favorite local music station, it was no longer your favorite local music station. It was one managed regionally or nationally. But larger than that is the diversity issue, especially as it relates to news and information. The fact that this has been tied up for as long as it has, and I am definitely among the people who, who believes it needs to be resolved. I just don't think that the way the FCC has tried to resolve it is the solution. But there have been some major mergers that have been... that would uh, would have had some significant consequences for access to information that kind of got caught in the wake of this. And the, the most obvious example of this is the Sinclair decision. The FCC's uh, 2017 uh, media ownership decision, even industry people were very critical of how it would look basic, in its basic design as a way to get the Sinclair merger, which was tied up in court at the time, uh, over the hump. And, you know, Sinclair, whether you agree with their politics or not, is certainly has a point of view. And their ability to absorb all of the Tribune stations at the time would have meant that there would have been at least one less point of view out there, and certainly the one point of view would have been disseminated even I further. Think, I think it's worth which, mentioning
1: at the expense of I others. I think it's worth too. mentioning at this point that the latest Sinclair uh, news, as far as their editorial bent and content, was that they were about to broadcast the YouTube conspiracy uh, pandemic about how the COVID nineteen um, pandemic has you know is all is all fake and that was about yeah, well, to be broadcast I mean, they, on the sinclair show on their it. across the country on their television stations uh they had to walk that back but it was it was close
2: well sinclair sinclair's allowed its point of view but it definitely has a point of view they were the they were the network of stations that ran the stolen honor documentary against john yeah. Kerry back in swift boat they've had a they've had a variety of problems with right uh running uh, news segments that were actually paid for without disclosure—they they are actually still under a thirteen million dollar fine uh, as we approach license time that they have not yet actually paid, as uh, at least officially have not yet paid uh, on that sort of thing. So the larger point, though, is that regardless of whether Sinclair's viewpoint is good or bad, it's that. By allowing Sinclair to buy more stations, or allowing any owner to buy more stations, you're reducing the diversity of news production and information and viewpoints. And you don't have to look any further on this than the horrifically low levels of broadcast station ownership by women. Uh, women own about 4% of media in the United States. And uh, racial and ethnic minorities, The uh, numbers even worse for them. And those are direct results of the FCC's policies between 1996 and 2010, many of which were then derailed when the court looked at the actual outcomes of that policy. And it's something that the FCC has tried to avoid accountability for over the last few years, and the most recent attempt to do that is to go to the Supreme Court and make sure that it isn't the Third Circuit that's looking over their shoulder as this process continues. But... I agree with the, uh, the the citizen petitioners and the Prometheus attorneys here that there is a perfect venue for the FCC to resolve this impasse if it's very concerned, as it said it was in its own briefs, about how long this process is drawn out. There's actually an open proceeding launched almost two years ago now, that the FCC has not done any significant uh, action in that is designed exactly to resolve these issues on an ongoing basis. And it's very clear that uh, the FCC wants a decision from the court before it makes another decision in the ownership proceeding. My concern is, is that the FCC is talking out of both sides of its mouth here. It's complaining about the delay, but at the same time, it's doing what it did in 2010 and 2014, and it's basically perpetually extending these reviews without making substantive uh, and supportable decisions uh, that affect us all. I mean, this is we are talking bread and butter when it comes to political participation and access to information. Broadcast system is still the most important system in the United States. They, you know, we can talk about the Internet all you want, but for Hispanics, um, you know, Adult Hispanics in the United States use radio. 93% of them use radio in a week for access to information. And that is a reality that's still on the ground today. And they have very limited control over stations in the U.S. despite the high level of usage that they engage in.
1: I just think it's worth underlining what uh, Christopher Terry just told us on Radio Survivor that, that despite the fact that Latinos in America – Uh, depend on the radio maybe more than, you know, more than the people who look like me. I, I always, I I start to wonder if the radio even matters anymore, right? From even though I love radio, like we're always talking about commercial radio on the most part. And uh, commercial radio has been so much um, ignored in my, uh, you know, in my listening habits for so long that I forget how important it is out in the rest of the country. And so for Christopher Terry to share with us how important it is for, for Latinos in the United States. And yet um, it, what you're saying is that for the most part, these stations that Latinos uh, depend upon are not owned by, uh, by people uh, who are Latino. They're owned more by uh, by who, I guess, is the question.
2: Well, they're owned in large part by conglomerates that aren't operating those stations locally. They're operating them on a national or regional basis. But beyond sort of the FCC's arguments here is the reality. The companies that the FCC touts as sort of the positive outcomes of this policy include companies like the defunct Clear Channel Empire, but also Cumulus Media. And to keep Cumulus Media intact, the FCC recently had to do something that was basically unthinkable 15 years ago, which was to allow that company to have 100% foreign ownership. Back before the 1996 Telecommunications Act, it was actually illegal for a uh, foreign entity to have majority control of a company that had broadcast stations. Um, it's actually a plot point in the movie Working Girl, of all things. <laughs> um, no, it, it's actually the plot point in the movie. Um, <laughs> about how the FCC doesn't allow companies to do that. Well, to keep Cumulus's 486 radio stations together as the company basically implodes financially, the FCC approved rules earlier this year that allows the company to basically be owned uh, by people outside of the United States. Now, the FCC very easily could have taken Cumulus' stations, which are in small clusters and small areas, divided that, reclaimed those licenses and, and reissued them to women and minorities. But it, the FCC didn't want to do that. They'd much rather pass a rule that would have been illegal 20 years ago.
0: So right now where we stand, uh, to remind everybody is that, uh, the FCC alongside the national association of broadcasters, the NAB, uh, have appealed this, this impasse over, uh, ownership rules uh, and the FCC's attempts to update them in a particular way that have been uh, struck down um, as not defensible by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, the next step then is for the Supreme Court to review this request to see whether or not uh, the court will even take up the review and, and, and hold a hearing. Um, if they if they would choose to do so, then, of course, then it will go to court there. If they do not, the, the FCC can choose to remand it back to or, or, you know, simply it does effectively remand back to that uh, Third Circuit Court of Appeals if, if they say they're not taking it up. Is that pretty much the two ways this can go, Chris?
2: Yeah, um, a lot will depend on what the Supreme Court does, obviously, but the timeline here is also of note. Uh, the Supreme Court will make a decision on whether or not to hear the case this fall. Um, by the time the court hears the case and makes a decision, We're going to have a presidential election. Uh, We're going to have at least one new commissioner at the uh, FCC because Commissioner O'Reilly will no longer be with us by then. Um, So there's a lot on the table on this uh, if it goes. My expectation is, is that there's not really anything novel in this case that warrants Supreme Court attention. There's certainly not a circuit split. The Third Circuit hasn't really modified its point of view at any point. It's basically said the FCC's always been wrong here. There wasn't sort of a two-on, two-off sort of thing where the court, the Supreme Court, would get in and sort of mediate that dispute. And I expect we won't see that the Supreme Court will take the case. Um, I certainly agree with the with the Prometheus petitioners on that uh, that point. But even if they do, uh, by the time we have a ruling, the uh, the FCC is going to be different, and um, by then the FCC is also going to have to make some action in this. Pending 2018 uh, <laughs> proceeding that's going on as well, but if the court doesn't hear the case, uh, where we where we are is pretty much at the same point that we're going to have a new FCC and that the FCC will be under the gun to make a decision as part of the 2018 uh, proceeding. But we may see a radically different uh, FCC by the time that that comes around. Either way, um, the court decision is just going to. Uh, sort of speed up or extend the process. But this process starts again from zero in 2022.
0: Well, I guess buckle the seatbelts on our easy chairs Uh, for this one. The voice you just heard is Dr. Christopher Terry. Uh, He teaches media law at the University of Minnesota. This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Mandel, and with me is Eric Klein. And Professor Terry is catching us up with uh, some legal things having to do with the FCC, um, which includes uh ownership regulations uh how it's decided who gets to own radio and television stations and how many they get to own and under what circumstances uh we'll also be catching up with network neutrality or open internet in a moment or two but uh chris you mentioned something in passing and i i'm gonna scoop it up (laughs) and and run with it here uh because i did hear about this but i haven't followed up on it so uh, one of the FCC commissioners, uh, Commissioner O'Reilly, who I believe is a Republican, um, he's up to be renominated, and you just mentioned he's not coming back.
2: Well, um, Commissioner O'Reilly's term is about to expire, and Commissioner O'Reilly is a usually fairly solid conservative voice on the on the on the commission um the you know sort of the notable thing about commissioner o'reilly uh, two notable things about commissioner o'reilly commissioner o'reilly is sort of the resident administrative law nerd at the uh, all among the commissioners he's kind of the the nerdiest of the ones uh but he's also uh, sort of infamous in the radio side for being a person who uh actively hunts radio pirates um, sort of been one of his uh, sort of chief uh, personal issues while he's been on the Commission the Trump administration uh, president Trump specifically renominated uh, Commissioner O'Reilly for another term and it wasn't expected to be a very controversial uh, renomination O'Reilly's been on the Commission for a while he's uh, he's sort of the devil you know if you will and the uh, this week, uh, as we record this, President Trump uh, rescinded that nomination when Commissioner O'Reilly uh, took a, a commendably principled stand against the NTIA petition for the FCC to review its the agency uh, authority of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Something that Commissioner Carr is uh, basically salivating over the prospect of doing. You,
1: Christopher, I don't understand. We're going to have to untangle yeah. that. Yeah.
2: Okay. Sure. <laughs> we're going to have to untangle under- okay. what 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 that is. I mean, I. Okay. So you're going to have to bear with me here. Okay.
0: Well, well. So, the so communica- let, me, let me if you can let me uh, take a quick stab at kind of setting it up here, right? Okay. So, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Is, is this little, you know, it Has come to more prominence lately and, and I think it gets discussed more uh, in newspapers and in news reports than it has been in a long time because this is the, the section that in plain terms effectively allows us to have uh, social media or allows us to have any kind of media platform where average everyday users are contributing things because it, it, it basically indemnifies a Facebook or a Twitter or a YouTube or a smaller player uh, from being liable Directly for anything someone like you or me or somebody else might post uh, you know w- with regard to any number of different different factors, but it could be things like um, certainly slander or libel but but also a uh, copyright and uh you know it, 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 some folks uh love this uh, section because it basically allows us to have a very uh relatively free if sometimes kind of uh, wildly chaotic um, media on the internet but there's some folks who would love to see it changed uh and, and they come from a lot of different sides as i understand of the conversation um because there's certain voices they wish <laughs> weren't weren't uh so easily uh promulgated is that is that a, is that a fair uh summary of uh, sure plain language what, of it
2: what section 230 of the communications decency act does it's just 26 words long by the way um it creates an immunity for third-party postings. So if I go on Twitter and I say something defamatory about Eric, what, uh, something libelous. What if you doxed I, me,
1: right? What if you told yeah, uh, listeners? No, not,
2: not, not, not like okay. that. If Just it has I, to be I, speech. It has to be speech, yeah, right? It has to be speech-orientated. If I went on there and I libeled Eric, Eric could still sue me for the defamation that occurred there, but Twitter is not responsible because they aren't, they aren't the ones who created that content. Um, there's a lot of misinterpretations of how 230 works in practice. And 230's history, of course, a little uh, comes to us from cases from uh, internet companies with names like CompuServe <laughs> and Prodigy for. For for some time's sake on it, it's actually a, a section within the Communications Decency Act, which itself was part of the Telecommunications Act of nineteen ninety six. It still refers to web platforms as internet or interactive computer services. For uh, some context, uh, in part two hundred and thirty was uh, part of a larger bargain. To get Senator James James Exon's uh, indecency regulation for the internet added to the uh, to the 1996 Telecommunications Act, James Exon uh, was one of the authors, but probably the chief proponent of the Communications Decency Act, which essentially would have given uh, the government the authority to enforce indecency rules, like they enforced. For broadcasters, but on internet content, early internet content, anyway. Um, Exxon very famous for carrying around a uh, blue binder full of printed off pornography from the internet as a way to convince senators to vote for this uh, this aspect. Much of the Communications Decency Act was voted down, but Section two hundred and thirty survived. Uh, the Reno v. ACLU decision from the Supreme Court because it actually functions as a basically a speech-protecting mechanism online. Internet platforms would have to do basically 100% content moderation of every single post if they didn't have some sort of protection like 230 online and uh, you have some weird coalitions on 230. I actually agree with the Libertarians far more on 230 than uh, most folks. Uh, that it, it, uh, it, it isn't perfect, certainly. It's not a perfect uh, provision. But it actually functionally protects an awful lot of speech uh, online. It awful, but like with all things that protect speech, there's a fair amount of speech that gets protected that uh, a lot of people object to, um, just like the First Amendment in practice. But the current debate actually originates with President Trump. He, uh, he handed down an executive order a few weeks ago that uh, asked questions about whether or not 230 should be quite as stringent as it was, for lack of a better way of explaining it. That has filtered down through the Commerce Department to the NTIA. And um, and who is the NTIA? Yeah, (laughs) they're the administrative agency that handles uh, Internet outside of the FCC. Um, They have filed a petition with uh, the uh, with the FCC now, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. They're an executive branch agency. They had more of an advisory role than a regulatory role like the FCC, if that makes sense. And uh, the NTIA petition asked the, it, it actually is a petition for rulemaking that asked the FCC what authority the FCC would have to enforce content moderation uh, around Section 230. And by this I mean it would basically put the FCC in a position of enforcing, a, okay, deep breath now, deep breath, an online fairness doctrine. Uh, on web platforms, you'll need to for rem- political of, speech.
0: The, the fairness doctrine hasn't been around a very, uh, for a long time, uh, even though it gets raised as a as a boogeyman inspector uh, regularly. Uh, what what is the fairness doctrine?
2: Well, the, what the fairness doctrine actually did was mandate that stations who have a broadcast license cover uh, news and public affairs that were uh, relevant to the local audience. For the station the area that the station served, the fairness doctrine is often uh, misinterpreted as requiring uh, something that only applies for political advertising on broadcasters equal time the the proponents of what's going on with 230 and the effort to get the FCC to do something on 230 see the fairness doctrine through the boogeyman lens as you describe they want the FCC to be in a position where they can enforce sort of a they, one side says this, so we get the right to say this on a platform as well. Um, f- to be fair, it's coming heavily from the conservative side. Ted Cruz has been on sort of a nameless crusade on this. He hasn't called it the Fairness Doctrine, but he's a- argued for it in all but, uh, all but name. And what the NTIA provision uh, or petition is about is implementing something that looks like that. Now, the fairness doctrine word is a avo- phrase rather is avoided like the plague. But Commissioner O'Reilly's statement, which got him in trouble this week, actually points out that uh, this is the people who are claiming to be free speech defenders, and it looks pretty clear he's pointing the finger at uh, Commissioner Carr. Uh, are, are sort of doing so in name only, that they're they're not true believers in the things that they say, because uh, at least one of the commissioners, and that is Carr, is very excited about the prospect of giving the FCC the ability to moderate and also compel content on various platforms by a reduction in the provisions that 230 protects. So uh, anyway, uh, after commissioner O'Reilly made that statement this week, the Trump administration rescinded its nomination of him, uh, because it was seen, uh, in some circles as an attack on this idea that, uh, the FCC and perhaps even the federal trade commission, uh, should be moderating, uh, and demanding some sort of equal time or, uh, equal playing field, if you will, or, uh, for speech on social media platforms,
1: this is. Uh, I just want to give context for this week. This is a week in which uh, Facebook and Twitter took down a Trump campaign ad and took down the Trump campaign accounts uh, because uh, Donald Trump stated in a camp in a in these campaign ads in an interview on Fox that uh, children are largely immune to COVID nineteen, and Twitter and Facebook were both uh, either forced to or chose to. I mean, this is not. We're not going to report this story today but they were they 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 were put in the position to censor this ad on their platforms which well, I'm sure-
2: un- unlike broadcast stations which have some uh, restrictions on what they can and can't air and what they're what they're required to air in in context of political ad both facebook and twitter are privately owned platforms and the government doesn't really get a say in how they moderate the content i can start a social media platform and invite 10 of my friends and just have it be my 10 friends talking. And the government has very little to say about that because of the First Amendment. So Commissioner O'Reilly made that point, and he is no longer going to be Commissioner O'Reilly as a result of that. Um, there's no indication as I, that I've seen this week uh, about who might replace him at the commission, but we're uh, we certainly must be a bit concerned about who that person would be because they would probably be on a pro-content regulation uh, platform as they come to the FCC. Um, it, looks, uh, it looks like the FCC is going to proceed. They announced uh, this week as we record this that the, uh, the agency will take comment on this issue. I've actually been solicited by some, uh, some folks I normally disagree with to, uh, to work on a comment uh, on this um, at, at moving forward because uh, the, there's some significant First Amendment, but also regulatory concerns on this, uh, this proceeding. And you certainly wouldn't want, regardless of where your political views went, you really don't want the government deciding what, what constitutes actual speech online. That's, that's a really dangerous precedent. Uh, before we went to air today, though, the Federal Trade Commission decided they wanted no part of this deal And uh, the the lead commissioner, the chair of the FCC said, we have absolutely zero authority to do what is being asked of us here. So we're just going to stay hands off on this. The Federal Communications Commission, however, is taking comments. There's a 45-day comment window open right now on this issue.
1: Uh, well I know that we have one more topic we wanted to get to on today's radio program, but I hope maybe we can come back to this issue uh well as I, we, yeah, I've uh, got a quick question
0: on on that uh mm-hmm. b- before we before we change topics but my my question really is is you know and i know re this requires some crystal ball reading, so I apologize in advance, and you can certainly say that you can't you can't see that far in the future chris but you know what <laughs> Would this uh, fairness doctrine of, of the internet for all intents and purposes, you know, is this something which, which is narrowly uh, constituted so that they're really taking aim at your Facebook and Twitter? Or is this something which ostensibly covers any internet media and, and, and you know, whether it's, uh, so not necessarily,
1: or Google,
0: right? this is, this, we know or, that the Republicans. Or, or no, I'm thinking smaller. I'm thinking tremendously smaller.
2: I'm thinking well, smaller. To, be, to be fair, it, it it is in its inception stages, and we don't know what it'll look like yeah. in practice. But it doesn't really matter. It's patently unconstitutional oh, <laughs> at I so know. many levels that it doesn't matter whether it's small or big. It's it's so unconstitutional as to uh, like fundamentally undermine the First Amendment if it were to pass. I I can't imagine a single federal court upholding. A, a final rule on this, you would have a coalition of people and about as wide as you could imagine uh, attacking something like this. You'd have people from every political stripe being a, uh, objecting to this. And rightfully right right so,
1: rightfully we know so. There are a lot of successful Republicans in California and Silicon Valley that, uh, that have a lot of power.
2: Yeah. It just, it just, it, 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 what, I'm not saying it couldn't be done. Uh, it would require uh, a massive movement on the part of Congress, the government, and administrative agencies that the likes of which we haven 't seen in at least two generations, but functionally, what is being proposed, at least the outline of what 's being proposed or asked to be put into place is just fundamentally unconstitutional, okay. and setting aside the fact that the fCC has no authority when it or, or a very uh threadbare authority as it relates to section 230 there there there's some uh the petition itself has some uh fairly technical but uh awfully thin reaches uh to give the fcc authority here right right um but that but it, you can't get around the constitutional issue on it at all
1: we have we have about 11 minutes left in the radio show and we want to talk about network neutrality but i all hope right. you can come back to section we don't two. need
2: much we don't need it's much time yet. we can do it we can do an entire show on 230 Oh want. my goodness! Yeah, yeah
1: it, unfortunately, we may have to. We are talking
0: with Dr. Christopher Terry, uh, who teaches uh, media law at the University of Minnesota. He's a regular contributor here to Radio Survivor to help us understand uh, what's going on with the FCC and, and and how it it might impact you know our daily lives, our ability to get information, transmit information, uh, get radio, television, and of course, uh, how we're how we're speaking to many to, of you, uh, how we get internet. And and so we're talking about network neutrality, which of course is the idea that uh, well, the network, the internet should be neutral, and that uh, data, all data should should be treated equally, um, and not be uh, given fast lanes or slow lanes, uh, so that uh, we can all have that kind of equal access to the internet.
1: Ubuweb, Ubu Web gets the same internet as Netflix. <laughs> Ubuweb and um, Netflix
0: on a, on on an even yeah. playing field, exactly. Uh, or, referring or, to. Or
1: your community radio station and Spotify exactly. are, have the same same access to the airwaves, uh, which is the internet air in this case. So,
0: so what had happened is is the is the FCC uh, decided to undo uh, rules that were put in place uh, called the Open Internet Order. So, the FCC under uh, Trump uh, Trump's current uh, chairman uh, Ajit Pai. Uh, undid the open internet rules, uh, which had been put in place by his predecessor, and and that uh, democratically led FCC, obviously under uh, the Obama administration. Uh, That was challenged in court, uh, led by uh, a coalition uh, of public interest groups, uh, led by uh, Mozilla Foundation, they're the people who bring you the Firefox web browser, and there were, you know, some provisions uh, were were, uh, were rather uh, a good portion of that of of that decision by the FCC was left intact. Um, but as I understand, one one part that that, that was uh, taken down was the FCC also tried to assert uh, the fact that uh, it had no authority over to, to actually assert network neutrality. But then neither did anyone else, and, and in particular, they were taking aim at states and, and the the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said, "Well, no, that's not the case." Uh, the fcc can't can't have it both ways they can say they they can claim uh they don't have the right to to regulate but they can't take that right away from uh the state of california or you know the state of uh, of idaho and um mozilla decided not to to further pursue any any additional uh, any additional appeals on this, and it's decided. Uh, you know, they took the hint that the fight for net neutrality lies at the states. But we we've um, we've had some developments in this again, Chris.
2: Yes, uh, as we record this week, uh, the California uh, law, the California net neutrality law, has come up in court. Now, this case has been pending since this battle broke out back in. Uh, uh, 2017, actually, uh, California quickly passed a state law guaranteeing net neutrality within the state borders, and the lawsuit related to that was put on hold while the uh, the other cases uh, worked themselves out. Mozilla decided not to ask for a Supreme Court review, in part because of the three issues that were remanded, the FCC wasn't really done on net neutrality, so they might be saving their uh, saving the Supreme Court appeal for, for next time. But this week, uh, the uh, the Trump administration went to war with uh, California in the case, which is now moving forward. And they actually, uh, the Trump administration actually is still arguing that they have the authority to preempt state law, even though the D.C. Circuit said, as you correctly described it, you can't have it both ways. If you declare broadband to be a Title II service, you have all the authority. But if you say it's not a Title II service, then you don't have any authority and you can't preempt state law. And this was a significant part of the decision. The FCC nominally wins in Mozilla, but the preemption issue, one of the three issues that is actually remanded in the case, actually largely undermines the FCC's action on net neutrality because any state would be free to regulate it on an intrastate basis. And several states have passed laws, including California, which was the first to do so. This is a, this is going to make a bigger mess of this situation for the FCC than they ever intended this to be. Certainly as uh, they're potentially going to have to fight over this, uh, this power potentially as many as 50 times uh, Twenty-two states were originally parties to the Mozilla case, uh, including Minnesota, where I am. And uh, there's uh, there's state laws in at least six states that I'm aware of that uh, guarantee uh, intrastate net neutrality um, of the type that had been guaranteed by the Title II order. So this case is uh, significant. A, it's in California and it's in federal court, but uh, it's going to be the precedent for... At least part of the case that will eventually make it to the Supreme Court on this issue, uh, assuming that a newly constituted FCC next year doesn't do exactly what the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals said it could do, which was revert back to the uh, thrice uh, uh, approved 2015 rules which impose Title II. What the court said. The open
0: internet rules, essentially. Yeah, the
2: open internet rules from 2015. What the court said in Mozilla is that the FCC was making a policy choice not to enforce Title II, uh, but that it wasn't that the original Title II rules, which even the Supreme Court had a chance to review, uh, were invalid. It's just that the FCC had the authority, as the agency that's in charge of this, to make a policy decision about which way was better. The Pi FCC decided the way that favored ISPs over citizens was better than the Title II, uh, which are more utility-style regulations.
0: So in this challenge to the California law, you said the Trump administration has stepped in. How did, how did it do so? What what arm of the administration has stepped in? Well,
2: any time that the, uh, the federal government is arguing with the state, it is actually the Department of Justice that okay. does the arguing the on chair. behalf of the government. Yeah, so it's not – it wasn't specific to the Trump administration per se, as much as it is that they're the group in power. And,
0: now. and the DOJ brought the suit, or they've joined the suit.
2: Uh, the DOJ brought the suit on behalf of the government and the FCC.
0: And this is a new suit, or is this is a
2: no? A, it's actually it's been a, pending since California, California passed okay. the law. Okay. The 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 lawsuit was put on hold pending an outcome of the Mozilla decision. Mozilla's decision in the last couple of weeks to not ask for the Supreme court review, uh, allows this case to move forward. And it's actually moving pretty quickly since Mozilla announced that decision.
0: So that, so right. So then again, this is the, uh, the Trump administration through the department of justice arguing that, um, uh, the FCC cannot enforce, uh, network neutrality in open internet, but, uh, and, 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 in part, saying that it has no authority to do so, or it chooses not to take up uh, the legal provision that would grant that authority, but they if they can 't have that authority they 're also arguing the states can 't either' something which is already right. as you know struck down. By the d c Circuit Court of Appeals, which says right they can 't have it both ways, either the the FCC can say we have authority and therefore uh, we can institute open internet and, and I suspect therefore might maybe also take precedence uh, on state rules, or we have no authority in which case uh, it 's open season for for a state, for instance, to assert that authority so uh, yeah
2: and it 's important to note that the d c circuit panel the original panel, in Mozilla, said that crystal clear it might have been the one thing that all three of the uh the judges on the panel agreed with and the case was appealed to the full dc circuit uh, and, and bank review and uh the the court didn't take the case at that level meant that meaning that the lower the the panel decision was Just still thought valid. It was good. yeah yeah so uh it's pretty clear that uh the decision is actually right in legal terms Uh, The FCC can't have it both ways. The fact that it was allowed to put in the open Internet rules in 2015 under Tom Wheeler was because they had reclassified broadband under Title II. And it's important to note that it was actually the D.C. Circuit that told the FCC if it wanted to have any kind of net neutrality rules and to have the authority to enforce those. Uh, that it would have to reclassify broadband under Title II. It said that in the Verizon decision, right. which actually overturned the FCC's previous net neutrality order because they didn't uh, pull uh, in the twenty fourteen.
0: Yeah, there, so basically yeah. it comes down to this: uh, the FCC has a lever it can pull uh, on, one, uh, on the on the on position. Um, it, it says that the internet's a utility and therefore they can enforce uh, an open internet and network neutrality in the off position it says the internet is not a utility, like telephone for instance uh, and and therefore uh, they, they, they they give up they, they they lose authority but they willfully give up the authority to regulate network neutrality um, and they 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 want to put it in the off position in the current administration, the DC Circuit Appeal says you can choose either position it just has outcomes you you choose. It's a choose your own adventure. Uh, either way is valid. They're basically say it's a policy decision. It's one which they don't believe uh, is otherwise impacted by by other court precedent or by the Constitution at some high level or other laws. But you choose your adventure in the on position. It's title, it's Title Two. It's a utility. You can have network neutrality in the off position. It's the other way. The FCC chooses, but there are consequences to the choice.
1: It's a extremely high stakes choice yes
0: it's extremely high stakes uh and and it's extremely
2: high stakes but what what the the one of the problems with the mozilla decision is it doesn't actually resolve this dispute um in that the mozilla decision is very clear that if the fcc were to decide again that the better approach is title two we know that title two is legally valid and that the fcc could just as easily uh, switch back. It would have to explain that decision, obviously, but it w- it, it could do that. Uh, and if um, if the FCC were to switch hands, you would have a more potentially pro uh, net neutrality FCC under a Democratic administration next time. They might do that rather rapidly. It's uh, actually been uh, discussed among Democratic candidates earlier in the year and in the last three or four weeks, Joe Biden said he'd like to see it switched almost immediately coming back. So it's uh, and you know, if the Democrats were to take the White House, they would potentially have the, uh, well, they they certainly would have the chairmanship, and they would have two very pro net neutrality commissioners on the, on the agency and uh, the, in the form of uh, Profe- uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel and uh, Commissioner Starks.
0: Well, Professor Christopher Terry, as always, we leave with lots of things to keep our eyes on. Uh, with fairly high stakes hanging in the balance. Uh, So we definitely hope you will have some time for us as developments come along to help us understand um, how our speech online and over the airwaves, how it's, how it's going to fare once again, uh, professor Christopher Terry from the university of Minnesota. uh, Thank you for uh, joining us here on radio
1: survivor.
2: You're always welcome. It's always nice to be here.
1: Yeah. Do you have some minutes for us to, to podcast? so what eric means
0: what? is that we uh we we often release a longer podcast than radio show in which
1: where yeah
2: i've got about uh i got about 10 minutes
1: all right well geez so we're still like uh this is the podcast audience same audience uh our online audience the radio audience now we've said goodbye to um which rabbit hole should we dive down i vote for
0: <laughs> i don't know uh, No what well, well, it's mean, on the to
2: be fair, question. there's not much to say on net neutrality other no, than no, the fact no. that the the state cases are going to move forward. The California case is going to set the precedent for the Vermont and the other laws. Uh, Montana's law certainly going to end up in federal court at some point. the 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 significant issue moving forward is whatever the decision in the California court is, that'll make it up to the appellate level, and you'll probably have a case in a different circuit. That's the kind of stuff that ends up like the a ninth court. circuit,
0: right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Ninth Circuit's a very different circuit than than the D.C. Uh, but I want to go back to two thirty, Section two thirty, because uh, I, I, you know, I, this is something I think Eric you wanted you've wanted us to kind of take up, and I and I haven't felt like it was the right hook, and we we clearly have the hook now, um, or maybe I was wrong, both are possible. Uh, but with Section two thirty, I mean, what I really start to worry about is you know is is once once we're into the land of internet speech, uh, you know, I mean, you know, does something like like, uh, a community radio station, right. All of a sudden now have to worry about that because they have an online stream or a podcast and network. And
1: this, this is the one that if I understand this correctly, and I know I don't understand it correctly, this is the one where, where the president, um, saw an opportunity to get some leverage over his, his frenemy, uh, web giant companies, you know, he's a, he's a huge fan of using their platforms, but he's also, uh, he also gets black eyes and bruised every once in a while when they exercise their power over his ability as the president to tweet things, right? So I,
2: I actually don't think that this originates with him. He's certainly interested in it, uh, yeah. Uh, as things go, but this has been simmering uh, in Congress for some time now,
1: right? Somebody put uh, a somebody maybe helped him with the idea, right, or something. Anyway. Well,
2: I, I don't know if that's how it works. I mean, I have no knowledge of. You know yeah. how it trans- transmitted, but this has been this, Congress, has been this has been kind of on Congress's mind for a while. Um, I think the moment at which I started paying attention to it being more than sort of just uh, uninformed uh, gobbledygook. Ted Cruz, whether you like his politics or not, it's actually a pretty smart guy, and he was actually in Congress berating uh, internet platforms in a hearing. Right, and, and what he was asking for, what, what he was asking, this was a while back now, when, what he was asking for, I remember at the time I'm like, wow, he really wants the Fairness Doctrine. Now he'll never call it that. But I mean, that was basically what he was asking. He's like, can we enforce something that is functionally the equivalent and not really of the Fairness Doctrine per se, but uh, sort of the boogeyman version of the Fairness Doctrine with the equal time provisions and stuff that were never actually part of the original Fairness Doctrine. But, you know, so this idea has been simmering. There's also on 230, there's a there's a great interest in being able to go after platforms for content that is posted on them. That's not just political criticism. Platforms like bad, bad actor platforms like Backpage.com are protected for the content that was on them even when that content was actually literally hurting people backpage.com the,
0: was is what what what, what was what was
2: backpage.com was, was a uh, sort of evil craigslist if you will uh, that had a lot of uh, prostitution ads on it right um, and that's, that's
1: very, i've also seen the uh, the wait. take from from not from a from a different corner that it was a that it was a safe space for sex workers to uh, to to practice their trade and that it was uh, you know, demonized by politicians looking for looking well, for an issue that they could win on.
2: Part part of the the, the conflation on two hundred thirty right now goes back to Fosta as well. With Fosta is actually the first time two hundred thirty immunity was ever penetrated legally. And a lot of people conflate sex workers with sex traffickers, and they're really not the same thing, right. um, in legal terms anyway. And uh So Backpage.com had a couple of sex trafficking cases, but lots of sex workers, consensual sex workers, were using the platform uh, to advertise their business. And uh, the sex trafficking, which occurred on Backpage, led uh, to FOSTA. FOSTA was actually passed to shut Backpage.com down. But what we saw is that when FOSTA was passed, uh, first off, the government was able to shut down Backpage.com without it. That's a, a part of the story. but. A lot of people who had speech that related to sex workers, even people who had outreach uh, websites, pulled that content down. They were afraid that if somebody made a comment or something on that site, that they'd be, potentially be liable for that because that immunity was pierced. And uh, what we're talking about now is taking away that immunity. Sort of the, the central provision of what's being proposed is that if you have a, a biased Post on uh your site or you're moderating one side over the other um you lose your 230 immunity one of the proposed bills was actually for a duration of time and it actually would have worked kind of like the digital millennium copyright act there would have been sort of a notice and takedown sort of process where once it was invoked then for a period of time you would lose your that website would lose its immunity it's absolutely uh uh, nuts <laughs> to think that this is a, this is good policy or that it's uh, even remotely constitutional to do uh, something like this. Reno v. ACLU makes internet content protected like a newspaper; it's protected under strict scrutiny, and that makes it a lot different than broadcast content, which is protected under a much lower constitutional test for rational basis. But to go back to your question about the community broadcaster. They would be protected for things that they would say on the radio because of the First Amendment. But if that went out on the Internet stream and 230 protections didn't exist, they would potentially be liable for things that occurred on the Internet. Yeah,
0: that's what I thought. That, yeah. That's what I, worried but, about. I
2: mean, that's a complete reversal of how it is. It works otherwise. Right? right. Normally, it's the Internet where you don't have to worry about what you say. And it's broadcasting where you've got to be real careful about what you say. Uh, If 230 provisions like this were put into place where they they take 230 immunity off the table, uh, a broadcast station would actually probably have more protections for the things it says on the broadcasting station than it would on. The, uh, the internet,
0: right? And 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 I'm worried about like say you know like calls. I guess might be might be considered that third you know usage. That's a third dependent. party ask. That's a third right.
2: party usage. Yes. You know, yeah, And,
0: and that- so in you know on a podcast, probably less of, uh, of a concern unless you're you know your anchor uh, owned by uh, Facebook. that's uh, no, Facebook owned by Spotify, which is effectively kind of the YouTube of podcasting, where it's free. Right. You can get up and running and start a podcast. Uh, you know, immediately more or less and have it submitted everywhere. You need to have it submitted on their platform. Uh, but anchor in Spotify, therefore could, could incur a lot of liability uh, because there's, you know, there's very little, you know, they don't have any control over it. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. Uh, thanks for <laughs> letting us chill down. On that unfortunate well, we rabbit should, hole. we
2: should actually, we should actually do a whole regular yeah. episode on this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd like to bring yeah. in, like to bring in uh, one of my grad students. He just just finished his PhD over the summer. He and I just wrote a paper on two thirty immunity. Um, his name's Scott Memmel. Yeah, He'd be a great uh, great guest. We could have a really robust conversation about two thirty. That would be a lot uh, of part fun. of a show. I'll talk to him about it when I see him next week.
1: Yeah, please do. Yeah, remind remind me again why it came up today.
2: Uh, well, Commissioner O'Reilly is going to lose his seat on the commission because he criticized the action that the FCC is taking. Uh, In even hearing this preposterous petition from the NTIA, Um, Trump Trump had actually renominated him. He criticized. He didn't call him by name, call him out by name, but he criticized Commissioner Carr and then the Trump administration uh, in the form of Donald Trump um, or on behalf of Donald Trump, perhaps um, removed. They pulled back O'Reilly's renomination. He's not going to be on the commission in a few weeks when his term is up.
1: Wow. Yeah, and then, and now again, what? And it's over this
2: 230 issue. I 80, mean,
1: that's, uh, 80 days before the election or so and then uh Yeah, I mean,
2: you know, strategically um you if you're a conservative, you want Mike O'Reilly on the commission. I mean, he's a he's a solid conservative vote. He's actually a pretty knowledgeable guy. He's other than to broadcast pirates, he's reasonably friendly to folks. Uh he's easy the the news media that I know <laughs> cover telecommunications issue really like him because he's really uh, really accessible he really likes to talk to people about um, what's going on at the Commission he, you know he does so in a way That's takes amazing. those sort of nerdy administrative law things like I talk about and what? he sort of makes them palatable in some ways to a more general <laughs> audience far better than pa- Pi, car or even uh, Jessica Rosenworcel are able to do well
1: what, what, um, uh, what was his what uh, was his you know job well, he he you know? uh, the FCC what's, commissioner, wh- what's that? What what work was he involved in prior to being an FCC commissioner? Who- I,
2: you know, I don't know that offhand. Um, but uh, you know, I'm sure he's going to land in an industry job. He's going to land on his feet. I mean, that's not the issue. But he was very clearly his nomination is renomination, excuse me, was actually very clearly pulled because of his criticism of this uh, initiative. Fascinating.
1: that wraps it up for the podcast of radio survivor you can email the program our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com we're also at social medias where you can interact with us every day if you'd like that sort of thing twitter and facebook for the most part and most importantly our website radiosurvivor.com is a place where you can check out Uh, news, commentary, and blogging on the world of radio from Jennifer Waits, from Matthew Lassar, from Paul rees and myself. If you are new to our program, you should definitely consider checking out uh, previous episodes of our podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts online, be it Stitcher, Apple Media, the Spotify platform, uh, now the big giant uh, in the podcasting industry. Or, or um gosh one of the Indies should I list the Indies off for you friends uh, find find an independent podcasting catcher on your device of choice and uh, and subscribe to radio survivor um radio survivor is a listener and reader supported enterprise to find out more go online radiosurvivorcom slash support oh and what I want to tell you about uh, previous episodes of the podcast we've had some great ones recently and uh very proud of all of them but in particular you should know that uh, Christopher Terry has uh, comes along t- catches us up on these ongoing stories on net neutrality on media ownership and as well as other goings on It's the FCC and these regular updates uh really sort of paint a broad and detailed you know not as detailed as attending the hearings or or lis- or reading the transcripts or following the news on a daily basis, but uh, you know, getting a getting a one hour summary rundown of the latest goings ons with these stories at the FCC about once every three months from Christopher Terry really has given me uh, a a nice a nice bird's eye view of, of these issues um, as the years go by. And so, we're very proud of the work, and uh, I encourage you to check it out: Radiosurvivor uh, slash podcast and i think we'll have links uh in today's show notes to previous uh, episodes where christopher terry has appeared you can just search for his name well uh on behalf of paul and jennifer waits and myself eric klein as well as matthew Lassar, the whole radio survivor team want to thank you so much for listening to the full episode and we'll see you next week